0: Well, good morning and welcome everyone that has joined us today. Um we've got a webinar titled Vaccine Mandates and Employer Legal Concerns. I'm Dr. Tommy Heisler with the Health and Safety Council. Very proud to bring you another webinar related to COVID-19 and the and the pandemic. Uh it definitely appears like this webinar will be our largest attended to date. Uh, It looks like we've got just at 1,000 people registered today. So we are very excited that we chose a topic that is meaningful for so many people. So we welcome you again. Uh, I took a look at the, the registrants for this webinar a little while ago, and we definitely have a wide array of attendees from all over the country, from state and federal government agencies, universities, private sector companies. So welcome to everybody. I'm sure there's going to be Uh, A lot of good discussion today, a lot of good questions. So uh, again, welcome. So the ongoing series that we have brought you throughout this pandemic uh, has been brought to you by HASC, the Health and Safety Council, as well as UT Health, both with missions of improving health and safety in the workplace. So we are are proud to have this this partnership along the way. And we hope you enjoy another one. Dear questions to the question box there on your your system. We can't hear you. We cannot see you. You cannot talk to us. Uh, The only way to get those questions answered is to type them into that question box. And we always try our best to answer all of them. And if we get short of time, then we will try our best to then uh, respond back to everybody as a whole via uh, written responses. So we do want to get those answers to you as, as much as we can. Thank you to our, our Hask sponsors. Without our, our our partners and our sponsors, things like this uh, could not happen. So again, we thank our platinum sponsors, we thank our gold sponsors, and, and anyone else that has contributed uh, to the success of, of what we try to do here. Also want to give a thanks to our vaccine coalition partners. Uh, Throughout the pandemic, our our, our, uh, uh, sector and the petrochem industry really got together and wanted to make sure that essential workers had access to vaccination. So in doing that, uh, uh, groups got together to make sure that that access was was readily accessible to any worker that needed it, especially along here in the Texas Gulf Coast area. So again, thank you to those uh, coalition partners that that participated in that. So you'll see some familiar faces today on our webinar. If you've joined us throughout the pandemic on on our whole series of webinars, you see these two jokers up here, uh, Dr. Del Close and myself. Uh, We also have some very special new guests today, which I'm gonna introduce shortly. Uh, We're gonna talk about medical updates on COVID-19 briefly. We're definitely gonna talk about things like ivermectin, Uh, We're going to talk about boosters and just try to pinpoint some of those answers that are kind of hot topics right now or all over the news, right? Uh, We want to make sure we get get some of those answers on the medical realm, but heavily today, we want to provide legal answers to some of those other hot topics that employers are definitely having uh, right now. And again, I'm going to introduce everybody in just one second. The entire recorded webinar today will be available for anybody to go back and, and look at. It's going to be available on our website, which is hasc.com. You see it uh, down there in the bottom of that slide there. So feel free to, you know, not have to scribble down every uh, answer that you see on the on the screen. We definitely will have this posted, and everything can be um, reviewed later at your convenience. So Dr. George Del Close, our first guest speaker today, is a professor at UT Health. He is board certified in pulmonology, board certified in internal medicine, board certified in occupational medicine. So he is truly a triple threat when it comes to his knowledge on this virus. We've enjoyed George uh, on these webinars since day one and very happy that he has agreed to come back with us and share some updated insight into where we stand with this pandemic. So,
1: George, take it away. Thank you, Tommy. Um, Hi, folks. Uh, Hope everybody is doing well and is uh, staying safe. Uh, I'm I'm only going to do a very brief presentation this time, and I'll leave the questions for or the the comments on boosters and treatments and things like ivermectin to the questions, because I know they're out there. Uh, And I want to give ample time to our colleagues um, in the legal arena to really uh, uh you know they're, they're they're going to be uh, doing the large portion of this um of this session today so i don't want to cut into any of their time so we're going to look at a couple of uh, of issues first of all what is the current situation in the u.s what you have here uh, what, when you're looking at, at at cases waves of covid uh, it's not enough to just look at total number of cases um uh, which is what's shown in the in the graph in red, uh, all the way going all the way back to February of 2020. So this is 20 months or so. And you, I think everybody's already heard that we're in the fourth wave currently, which is what's uh, over on the right. Um, the uh, number of uh, cases uh, per day, per day, is what's featured on on this graph. Is currently at around 150,000. Now back in December, January. Um, We peaked out at uh, almost 300,000 cases a day, about 275,000, and uh, that was our largest surge. But right now, we are in the middle of what's known as the Delta variant surge, and our cases are way up, uh, as we see. In addition, uh, if you look at the lower uh, lower graphs, uh, hospitalizations are also up in parallel to the current uh, fourth wave as are deaths. Since the beginning of this pandemic, the US has um, amassed, or at least has counted, approximately 40 million cases of COVID, and that is likely to be an undercount. Um, Tragically, however, uh, the number of deaths, which which the counts are a little bit more reliable, is 650,000. That is a staggering number of uh, of deaths in a country that is among the most developed in the world, and it should give us some pause for thought. But let's take a look at the details, going to uh, the next uh, slide. We do know that uh, there was a big game changer, despite the current surge, there has been a game changer since December of 2020, which is the arrival in record time of very effective vaccines um, uh, to uh, to, to, uh, fight the pandemic. They have been very effective. They are still very effective. Um, And uh, there's been an all out national effort to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Currently, about 75% of all adults in the US, which is a staggering number, um, have received at least one dose, and close to 64 65% have been fully vaccinated. If you start looking, at, if you instead you look at people ages twelve and up, because remember that the authorization for children uh, starting at age twelve through seventeen came much later. nonetheless, they've been doing, or we've all been doing a very good job of catching up there. They're almost caught up uh, with us uh, so that seventy three percent of that population has received at least one dose and sixty two percent is fully vaccinated. The all ages number that you see at the top, that includes children who are under the age of 12. And remember, currently we don't have any vaccines authorized for children under the age of 12, but ultimately we would like to have it because as you've probably heard in the news, currently with this fourth wave, children are making up a much larger proportion of cases than they have been in the previous waves, about one in four. And so uh, we need to get them vaccinated, especially now that they're going back to school, uh, et cetera. So I think nationally, we are chipping away at this. We are doing a good job, but we need to do much better. We need to get as close to 100% of the population vaccinated. We know that's a little bit uh, uh, utopic, but we just can't stop because the secret to controlling this pandemic is the vaccine. Next slide. So how do cases and vaccines relate to each other? What you have on the left is a map of uh, where the current hotspots in cases are in the US. The darker orange to red to burgundy, the greater the number of cases. On the right, what you have is the number of vaccinations in the US by state, actually by, by county as well. The lighter the color, the lower the vaccination rate. And what becomes immediately obvious is that if you look at the dark areas where the cases are occurring on the left, which is predominantly in the southern United States um, and the uh, along the uh, southern uh, east, eastern coast, uh, which that's where most of the cases are occurring. If you look on the map on the right, that's where the colors are tend to be much more pale. That's, in other words, states and areas that have low vaccination rates have higher case loads that's a very important message Um, there are states where despite what we hear about the current fourth wave have been faring it very very well states like vermont and massachusetts have been doing very well they've seen an uptick but their cases tend to be mild and uh, result and they haven't seen much of a blip in hospitalizations or deaths and so that's a message that i do want to to reiterate vaccination is the key to winning the battle against this pandemic that does not mean that we don't supplement vaccination with other measures because this delta variant is much more contagious than the previous variants this is why we've had to go back to masking at least in indoor uh, settings especially Uh, in highly congregated indoor settings, even if you are fully vaccinated, because even though you have very good protection, you might nonetheless be exposed to somebody who has the virus. You can carry it and transmit it to others, even if you don't sustain the infection. Okay, next slide. So one of the questions, next slide, uh, Tommy. So I'm gonna finish up by talking a little bit about the, the, the risk of disease Uh, in fully vaccinated individuals versus people who are not fully vaccinated. And uh, again, we're hearing on the news that uh, something called breakthrough infections, where people that are fully vaccinated are nonetheless getting infected with COVID. And that's true. This, uh, like I said, this is much more infectious than the previous variants. But that does not mean that the vaccines we currently have are not affected. When you look at number of cases of COVID, there are three things that you have to consider. First of all, how many people are getting a case? Even if they don't have symptoms, they can be infected, or they can have very mild symptoms, or they can have moderate symptoms, or they can be severely ill. By severely ill, we mean cases that wind up in hospitals, therefore hospitalizations make a difference, and people who unfortunately die from the disease. That's another example of severe illness. So let's look at vaccination, full vaccination, in the context of those three levels. Number of cases, so risk of getting any infection, hospitalizations, and death. And when we look at the risk of getting any COVID infection, if you are fully vaccinated, it's about one in 10,000 Uh, fully vaccinated persons per day, one in 10,000. Now, in states that have lower vaccination rates, that number is is, uh, lower. It's one in uh, 5,000. So, but still, very, very unusual. In contrast, people who are not fully vaccinated are about nine times higher. They have a nine times higher rate of getting any COVID infection. These are average numbers for the U.S., and they vary widely by state because, as I showed you in the previous uh, map, state vaccination rates vary tremendously. So, if we look, for example, at the state at Washington State in the graph uh, 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 lower on the right, it basically bears out what I just said. So, they did a study um, uh, of their and compared their fully vaccinated population or unvaccinated, and it was about 0.9 cases for every 10,000. So essentially the same as the one in 10,000 that I mentioned, and not fully vaccinated is about nine out of every uh, 10,000. Next slide. But just counting number of cases is not enough. If you you were to ask me, what is the most important thing I want out of a vaccination? In an ideal world, I would love for the vaccination to be 100% effective, to make COVID go away, to reduce my chances of ever getting COVID to zero. But that's not the case. Nor, nor by the way is it the case with any other vaccine that we give to human beings but we we don't prevent hundred percent of, of cases but we do prevent a substantial number and what if you ask me what is the most important thing i'm looking for in a vaccine with respect to covid 19 it is prevention not of all cases but especially of severe cases that means the ones that land you in the hospital or unfortunately six feet underground So let's look at hospitalization. Hospitalization, if you are fully vaccinated, your risk of developing a COVID infection and winding up in the hospital is less than 0.1%. In contrast, 99.9% of the people who are hospitalized in the nation um, are those who are not yet fully vaccinated. Either they're not vaccinated at all, or they've gotten the first dose, they never got the second one, or they're in between doses, et cetera. And that is, again, clearly illustrated on um, uh, the uh, graphs. On the right, this is a, a study out of Los Angeles County, but it illustrates my point. The top graph is total number of cases. Even if they're mild, moderate, the majority of which are spent at home, not in a hospital, you'll see that there's a big difference between the dotted black line, which are the unvaccinated folks, and the fully vaccinated people, Um, which are in the blue line. Now, the fully vaccinated people are, the the, the numbers are going up. There are breakthrough infections. But the overwhelming majority are not severe because if you look at the graph on the bottom, which is hospitalizations, the dotted line, dotted black line, fully, uh, it's unvaccinated, is going up, up, up. And the blue line, which is fully vaccinated, is almost flat. And finally, the last slide, last series of slides yeah the last slide so uh let's look at deaths um and we'll put deaths uh in uh, first of all in context of um that's probably the most severe outcome i think we'd all agree that the, la- the last thing you want is to die from covid if you look at the the pictures on the the graphic on the right the blue shows you fully vaccinated people and these are the rates of total cases Per 100,000, I'm not using 10,000 now. I'm using 100,000 fully vaccinated people. You'll see that there are, uh, you know, several light blue cases. These are breakthrough infections. The majority of which do not wind you up, uh, you know, do not uh, wind up in a hospital. The darker blue are hospitalizations. You see, it's only a handful out of all of those light blue, uh, or all of the people in, the, in in the fully vaccinated column. And if you look at deaths, it's one half. Of a person there, and I'm saying one half because it's cut off. That's really the only one. Deaths, if you a death from COVID, if you are fully vaccinated, is exceedingly rare. In contrast, if you look at the graph on the right, people who are not fully vaccinated, first of all, the light orange, which is the total number of cases, are many times larger, many times more people per 100,000 than the blue on the on the left. The um, Darker orange ones at the bottom represent the hospitalized cases, and the black represent the deaths. This translates into a risk of approximately 0.1 deaths out of every 100,000 fully vaccinated persons, if you are fully vaccinated, as compared to 1.1 deaths. Uh, out of every 100,000. Remember that the U.S. has 340 some plus million people, so 1.1 out of 100,000. When you start multiplying it and you you remember that about 80 million people in the U.S. are still unvaccinated, that uh, translates into a whole lot of unnecessary deaths. And I think that was my last slide. I wanted to to set all that out there. Those are my basic points, and I'll be happy to, to address the questions later on, but now I'd like to Turn it over to Sue and uh, Daniel for their their part, which is the bulk of what we're doing today. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, George. Uh, really appreciate that. Um, I always always like to preface these webinars by saying that you know anybody that talks to you on these webinars, any of our subject matter experts are are only as good as the information that we have on that given day or over a period of time. and And what we what we tell you today could, of course change tomorrow as that sometimes happens. So we'd all, of course, want you to reference the most contemporaneous information that comes out in your area or your county or, or by your local governments. Uh, believe me, as, as a physician trying to navigate through this pandemic, these things change every day and we're always trying to catch up and, and stay ahead of the game. But uh, what we're gonna present to you today is obviously the most up-to-date information. So uh, we're, we're looking forward to this next discussion here um, so I'm very excited to have with us two stellar attorneys from the law firm Morgan Lewis. You know, all along the way since we first started doing these webinars, George and I constantly had to say, along with our other subject matter experts uh, joining us on those webinars, always had to say, I'm sorry, we, we, don't, we don't know the answer to that because we're not attorneys, and we wish we had an attorney on on the webinar to help answer that that legal question well today's the day folks and you know I, I know for me as as i talk to different companies all over the world and all over uh, the united states and when i travel to different work sites i hear policies around employee covid issues that have been created because of some legal opinion and sometimes those policies really are fascinating and astound me because there's a lot of misinformation out there. I think in a lot of minds, you know, everything related to COVID is HIPAA protected. So nobody can ask anybody anything. It's all protected. It's all privacy. You can't ask an employee anything. And, and, you know, what we're going to find today, I think through through our discussion is that's not the case, in most cases, uh, if not all cases. So we knew we needed to put this webinar together and get these minds together and really give you uh, the most up-to-date answers to some of those uh, employment questions and issues. So if you Google top law firms in the U.S., Morgan Lewis typically will always come up on, on those lists. It's a great law firm with a lot of expertise uh, in those attorneys. So. Uh, very excited to have with us a couple of those, and our first guest is Sugen, Susan Feigen-Harris. Uh, Susan's expertise concentrates on regulatory and compliance in the field of healthcare, where she provides legal guidance to an array of healthcare companies, physicians, executives, as well as providing advice to navigate healthcare policy at the state and federal level. Susan has been instrumental as an active leader during the COVID-19 pandemic to assure her clients and the community, as she's doing today, are are up to date on those those legal answers and in compliance with government regulations. So uh, thank you, Susan, for being with us today. Also with us today is Dan Kadish. Dan is a labor attorney and represents and counsel's employers facing employment issues and has been a leader on Morgan Lewis's COVID-19 Compliance and Counseling Team, in addition to counseling clients on COVID-19 issues, specifically relating to vaccination. He regularly assists clients focused on finding solutions to pressing labor-related issues, including accommodations, performance management, workplace investigations, hiring separations, and workplace policy revisions. So, thank you to both Dan and Susan for being with us today, and I greatly appreciate them letting me severely limit their bios because otherwise we'd be here all day with uh, spouting out their extensive education and expertise. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to pass this over to Susan and Dan to
2: enlighten us. Go ahead. (laughs) Thanks, Tommy. Uh, I was thinking as you were saying that, that it's only because I'm old. As old as you get, you keep doing more things. Um, Thank you so much. So I will just say as the daughter of an infectious disease physician, this pandemic uh, has really uh, both touched me personally as well as um, made made me very passionate, uh, both within our law firm and externally, about the issues Dr. Del Close talked about, which is the importance of vaccination. So long before this, I was very much focused on vaccine advocacy in the pediatric community. And lo and behold, here we are today. Um, and it does pain me <laughs> that we're in this situation. So I'm really pleased uh, to be able to visit with you all today and provide really Uh, my colleague, Dan Kadish, uh, when when Tommy asked me to do this, I was so honored. I I said, well, it's great. I'm happy to provide healthcare regulatory expertise, but really much of the, many of the questions that arise today, as opposed to in the beginning of the pandemic, really fall in this area where healthcare and labor and employment come together. And many of the questions really fall outside primarily the healthcare provider environment, especially now, and move more into the employment environment. So you probably won't hear me speak as much today as you will, my colleague, Dan, and I'm really pleased that he chose to um, join me today. So uh, let's just lay the groundwork a little bit. Um, Today, we can say that um, federal law, permits employers to mandate COVID vaccination for employees that are physically entering the workspace. Now, of course, as many of you know, as Dr. Heisler alluded to, this hasn't been the case, we haven't had this kind of definition um, really uh, until today and things continue to move from a legal perspective, but uh, federal anti-discrimination laws permit vaccine mandates as long as employers abide by these reasonable accommodations and and there are a number of laws federal and state often that play into these kinds of determinations so while we're speaking in generalities i will say as a caveat really for everything you can't give one answer without making sure we know what state you're in Um, what locality you're in, so that we make sure we do a thorough analysis because oftentimes, as you'll see, things change from state to state. Um, The initial argument was about the fact that the vaccines were uh, were permitted by means of an emergency use authorization. We, of course, today are in a different situation. The FDA granted full authorization of the Pfizer vaccine, late uh, in August. But even without the full FDA authorization, the EUA status does not prevent an employer from mandating vaccination. Next slide, please. So we sit today with some precedent. Prior to this precedent, I will tell you, there was one Supreme Court case and many of us read it and uh, were surprised today, you know, it, during the summer, say, oh, there was a case in 1905 called Jacobson out of the state of Massachusetts dealing with smallpox, which allowed the man you to mandate vaccines when it came to smallpox. That precedent is the very precedent that sitting here in Houston, Texas, where I am. Um, the provider here in Houston, Houston Methodist, uh, was sued. Methodist really was the pioneer here in terms of taking a stand, frankly, from a legal perspective. While many, many healthcare entities, and I was involved in advising many of them, were thinking about mandating vaccines for their healthcare workers who are on the front lines treating patients, Houston Methodist took a stand and said, we're going to do this. And, and they, they made sure to provide notice ahead of time. Nevertheless, they were sued. Um, So in that very important lawsuit, Judge Lynn Hughes made a determination, an important determination, which now is the precedent that is being cited in every other lawsuit across the nation. And I think I've quoted here, I thought one of the more important statements, it's a very, it's a very uh, concise opinion. But Judge Hughes said, Methodist is trying to do their business of saving lives without giving them the COVID virus, meaning the patients and those nurses or or healthcare providers. It's a choice made to keep staff, patients, and their families safer. Bridges, meaning the plaintiff, can freely choose to accept or refuse the vaccine. However, if she refuses, she will simply need to work somewhere else this is an important component here meaning you'll see in the next case which had to do with students at a university indiana university um, the same concept uh arose which is you don't have to attend that university just like you don't have to work at houston methodist you just make a decision and you can get a job or go to university somewhere else so that was those there's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo in all of this, but that's the bottom line decision. And with those two really important cases that came almost on the heels of each other, we have some legal precedent that really allowed many others to almost immediately uh, institute vaccine mandates. The day that the Houston Methodist decision came out, uh, a number of hospitals in New York Openly said, we're going to we're going to mandate vaccines. Next slide, please. So as you'll see here in this slide, it, it's sort of impossible to keep updated. So just so you know, and I'll make a plug here for a firm. Um, we actually have several what I'll call resource uh, documents. We've been trying to keep 50 state surveys and uh, uh, updates with respect to all kinds of issues from executive orders to um, waivers that exist in my area for healthcare providers who uh, provide telehealth and other kinds of um, services where there have been waivers that have been issued but we also keep track of states that may have written guidance with respect to um, vaccine mandates uh, any other executive orders etc so um, there's only one state, I think, still, Dan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that has passed legislation prohibiting discrimination on the basis of vaccine status by private employers. That's Montana. And while other legislatures have considered them, uh, I don't believe anyone has any of those uh, statutes have passed. So. Um, I'm gonna turn this over to Dan to take on now some of the employment-related issues, and then we'll be able to get into some questions. So Dan, I'm gonna turn it over to you for the next slide.
3: Sure, and real quick while we're actually on this slide, I'll just reiterate the first bullet here after the federal guidance came out and the federal DOJ has said employers can mandate vaccination, many, many states, and so this is mostly a complete list in this first bullet, but there's probably others that aren't included there, have issued guidance in effect saying often the state is not going to mandate vaccination of its citizens, but the question of whether a private employer can mandate vaccination is just up to that employer and it's their decision. So they actually now increasingly at the state level we're seeing strong support from state agencies that employers can mandate vaccination so that really was a big question as sue described but no longer is a significant area of ambiguity so if we go to the next slide then the area of ambiguity is well what do we do next if we want to do a mandate how do we do it what can we ask for what do we have to think about and And what type of liability could there be if we don't do everything quite right, or what steps should we put in place to try and mitigate that liability? And those kinds of questions have been incredibly vexing for our clients and have been in the news quite a bit. So we'll hope to uh, give high-level guidance on as much of this as we can, but then definitely look forward to questions and want to hear what all of our attendees are thinking about what their pressing concerns are. So the first is if we're gonna mandate vaccination, okay, I heard Sue explain I could do it, but but now what do I actually do? What does that mean? So normally what it means is a company will say effective on a certain date, often six to eight weeks in the future to provide a significant runway so people can get fully vaccinated using a two-shot vaccine series, if that's their preference. Employees must be fully vaccinated, or have received an approved accommodation, and we'll talk about that in a couple slides. And the usual requirement is you must show us proof that you have been fully vaccinated. Now, employers don't have to require proof. Some employers are thinking about assigned signed attestation that employees will fill out, or just saying effective X date, if you come into our premises or work in person, or maybe go to a hospital provider, if that's where someone performs services, then you have to be vaccinated. But most of the time organizations are actually requiring proof because it just removes any kind of question about whether someone's actually following the requirement. And it's an easier employer policy often to enforce, to say, we have a list and all these employees have submitted proof, and they're good to go. And it's hopefully a relatively small list of those who have not and follow up is needed. For what type of proof and how to submit proof, that's what the first bullet here with a bunch of sub bullets shows, there's actually quite a bit of different options. So you could have employees and this is one pretty easy approach. Submit that proof directly to the company, maybe through Workday as a common HRIS system. It could be an employer application or just an email inbox that says vaccine at companyurl.com and that's fine also. The key here and getting to Dr. Heisler's point from the beginning is this HIPAA, oh my God, how can we request this information? Is The answer is no. Where a company is getting this information, even if it's a healthcare company, directly from their employees in their role as an employer, HIPAA is not implicated whatsoever. What is implicated is EEOC guidance that says if companies are getting proof of vaccination or documentation about vaccination, they should keep that information confidential. And what we think that means, and we can talk about this a little bit more, I think there's probably gonna be some questions on it, who gets to see that information? How should it be shared? Our general guidance is that information should be stored in a secure location, separate from personnel files. If someone is showing proof of vaccination, That could be deemed medical information that has to be stored separate and securely. And we just generally want to limit the people who have access to that information to as finite of a group as possible and have it be people who only really need to have access to that that information. So maybe it's individuals in HR, maybe it's senior leadership, but it shouldn't be general company wide, because this is sensitive information. And we want to reassure employees that the company is acting appropriately, that it needs this information to make health decisions, but it's not going to misuse it or share it beyond those who actually need that information. Um, Next slide. And I didn't mention it here, but one other option is having a third party provide this. And so some companies are having a third party collect this information and keep it and just keep a record of which employees have uh, verified that they are fully vaccinated. So as I just mentioned, the EEOC guidance uh, does very clearly say vaccine status on its own is not a disability related inquiry. So employers can ask employees and can require employees to answer whether they're fully vaccinated or not they just must, as I mentioned a moment ago, treat that documentation or confirmation of vaccination as a confidential medical record. Again, that is EEOC, which is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the federal employment agency. States may have additional nuance and variation. California is one state that does have more significant privacy laws. And We didn't say this specifically, but all of this guidance is US focused. The rules are very, very different outside of the United States and some of our colleagues are looking very closely at those issues. But to the extent there was any ambiguity, In general, the U.S. has very clear guidance now at this point on what employers can do with respect to COVID and requiring vaccines. In many other parts of the world, including parts where vaccine access is still relatively limited, there's much less guidance and there's not as clear of a legal approach to go off of. Um, What employers should do when thinking about how to use this information if other people want to know who's been vaccinated is to make sure there's a reason that that person knows. It shouldn't be, well, I just want to know if John in the cubicle next to me is vaccinated, that's probably not a sufficient reason. If there is a senior manager planning an off-site visit and wants to know we want everybody vaccinated at that visit because it might be hard to maintain social distancing, maybe it'll be mostly indoors, depending on the part of the country and time of year, that might be sufficient. But there should certainly be a thoughtful process in place to who has access to this information to control how it's used, and generally, we think it makes sense if a manager is gonna have this information to provide some type of training and guidance to the manager so they know how to use it and how not to use it, which actually just protects the organization and that individual. So the bottom line here, which is the last bullet, is in general, this information really should be shared on a need-to-know basis, and when it is shared, there should be a good justification for doing so, and to the extent it is shared, Companies should not share actual copies of vaccine cards or pictures that says so-and-so received Pfizer lot XYZ 123 from this location on July 30th and their birthday is May 15th, 1985. Instead, it should say so-and-so has been fully vaccinated and that's it, because that probably is the extent of the actual information that's relevant to the decision making. Next slide. And as much of a mouthful as all of that was, that's actually the easy part. The hard part is dealing with accommodation requests because as EEOC guidance says, and many states have copied this in their own formal state law or guidance, companies can do a vaccine mandate so long as they make appropriate accommodations for those unable to be vaccinated. And the two overarching umbrella categories of, Qualifying reasons to not be vaccinated are disabilities or medical accommodations, which we'll talk about here, and religious accommodations, which are on the next slide. Before getting into this one, though, a big question has come up, and hopefully this answers some of them out of the gate. What about pregnancy? Can I be vaccinated while I'm pregnant? And Dr. Heisler and Delklos can give the medical guidance on that, but the employment side guidance is pregnancy on its own is not a disqualifying reason to not be vaccinated. And this is an area where I think and our esteemed physicians here can correct me, but the guidance has uh, changed as we've gotten more data and we've had more test results over the last nine months or so. Um, So now it would be, we think, uh, pregnancy in general is not statutorily required to be accommodated, but there is legal guidance from the United States Supreme Court. It's a case involving UPS uh, where an employee was who was pregnant and wasn't able to lift boxes and other things was saying she should be accommodated the same way that people who are disabled should be accommodated. And the Supreme Court agreed. There's a different statute not mentioned here, which the statute here is the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act. There also is the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. And the Supreme Court has held where companies are granting accommodations based on disabilities, they should also generally grant those accommodations to people who are unable to be vaccinated to meet whatever job qualification it is, hear vaccination with respect to pregnancy. And a lot of states have specifically included pregnancy as a protected category that requires accommodation. Um, However, no state has said somebody who is planning to get pregnant in the future has to be vaccinated, which has been a big question we've seen also. So at a high level, Hopefully that background was uh, helpful because we've seen this question come up over and over. Under the ADA though, employers must provide accommodations unless it would be an undue burden for them to do so. And the question about what's an undue burden is also one that varies somewhat in state law, and it's different between medical accommodation requests and religious accommodation requests. So the bottom bullet here explains under the medical side here, if someone says I cannot be vaccinated due to a medical condition, perhaps they have an allergic reaction to one of the ingredients in the vaccine. oftentimes, we've seen actually people didn't realize they were allergic, they had their first vaccine shot and had a really negative reaction and learned that they're allergic to one of the ingredients through that method. If it would be a significant difficulty or expense, then employers can rely on the undue burden accommodation when making exceptions from vaccine requirements. That can be difficult to show. What is a significant difficulty? What is a significant expense? For a large hospital system, sophisticated employers, it's really hard to say this would be really expensive for us to do when it's a multimillion dollar organization. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but it's harder to rely on that justification. Uh, What companies can do though is also deny requests because it is a significant difficulty, and this is the last line here, where the individual poses a direct threat to themselves or others. And somebody who is unvaccinated, especially if they are working in person, in close proximity with other individuals, maybe not able to socially distance, maybe not always able to wear a mask or some other type of protective covering, maybe they have significant exposure to the public, could pose a direct threat to themselves or others. And the stats that Dr. Delclose raised all support that the vast majority of individuals who carry the virus are unvaccinated. And as a result, the majority of transmission is from unvaccinated individuals. Even in the case where it's a breakthrough case, often the transmission is from unvaccinated individuals initially. Um, Employers when reviewing these requests can require proof from a physician or medical provider that the person does have a qualifying medical condition. It probably has to be a medical condition for which uh, getting vaccinated is contraindicated, but there might be other indications and this needs to be a nuanced individualized process where companies look at it at an individual level to see if Dan cannot be vaccinated due to a specific condition he may have. So that's the medical side. Next slide, please, and this is the last one before we start going to some questions. And I, I'm ramping up the uh, confusion here, I think, because the medical side is also the easy side of the accommodation analysis. The incredibly complicated side, which has actually, I think, been the leading cause of consternation for our clients over the last couple of weeks, is what to do with religious accommodation requests. So under Title VII, an employer must provide reasonable accommodations, just like they have to do for medical requests, where somebody has a sincerely held religious belief that prohibits them from meeting a job qualification, here, vaccination. Now, earlier in the pandemic, we saw lots of individuals saying that their religious sect of Christianity or another religion prohibited them from being vaccinated. That is actually relatively unlikely to be the case now. The Catholic Church, the Church of Christian Scientists, Jehovah's Witness, and many, many others have all issued formal statements specifically saying their religious views do not prohibit vaccination. They generally say they support public health measures and they think it's important to take appropriate public health measures. And if anything, an individual decides they don't want to be vaccinated, that they have that choice and they support the individual's right to decide for themselves whether they want to be vaccinated or not. But it's not a formal religious view or any type of view supported by a formal religious belief for the most part. Uh, That doesn't mean that if an employee says I can't be vaccinated due to my religion, a company can come back and say, well, your religion says they don't prohibit vaccination and deny the request. This is why it's risky. The decision has to be done on an individualized basis and companies can get some follow up information. That's what the second bullet here is. If somebody says they can't be vaccinated then companies can follow up where they have an objective reason to need more information. And maybe they ask for something like a letter from a pastor or other religious official or just an explanation from the employee what it is about their specific religious beliefs or practices or observances that prohibit them from being vaccinated. The key difference here between religious accommodation requests and medical accommodation requests is the standard for what is an undue burden is far, far lower under federal law, Title VII, for religious requests than it is for the ADA. So on the last slide where I explained it had to be something that was significantly costly, the ADA standard, the EEO, excuse me, the EEOC follows the standard, but the Title VII standard is for religious accommodation requests anything more than a de minimis cost, that poses an undue burden. And if somebody is a health risk, that can pose an undue burden. And so what we have seen, and this is a decision that should be made with counsel, is companies treat requests a little bit differently because it's easier to deny religious accommodation requests and rely on that undue burden standard to show we can't accommodate this because letting you work in person would be an undue burden. It poses a threat to others. And it's easier to make that showing for a religious accommodation request than it is for a disability related request. Not impossible, but it's easier. That said, not every state follows that same approach. So California is one example, New York City is another, where it's not that low standard for religious accommodation requests. But it's worth Noting that, and the reason I focused on it is what we have seen from our clients is the vast majority of requests they are receiving once they announce a vaccine mandate are religious-based because there are just so few disabilities or medical conditions that prohibit someone from being vaccinated. And as Dr. Delcos and Heisler can attest, this was clearly done intentionally, and the vaccine makers were very careful about what they put in them because they don't want them to be harmful, and they want them to be widely used from a medical perspective. So instead, what we frequently see are claims for religious accommodation requests, which at times can be led by uh, misinformation about what somebody can tell their employer, what their employer has to do as a result. And in fact, there are now actually websites where people can go online and basically buy letters that say they need a religious accommodation request. So at a high level, those are that's the employment background. And those are a lot of the issues that our clients have been trying to handle. And a lot of clients are looking at alternative ways of doing vaccination and increasing vaccination rates also. We didn't cover it in slides, but A lot of organizations are looking at incentives they can do. One that's been in the news recently, Delta announced they were going to do a $200 per month, I believe, uh, insurance surcharge on unvaccinated individuals under the justification that Their insurance costs are so much higher for those individuals when they have to go to a hospital and the chances of them going to a hospital, as Dr. Douglas mentioned, are significantly higher than somebody who's been fully vaccinated. Other potential incentives could be raffles, awareness campaigns. Some of our organizations have gotten very clever in saying, once you're fully vaccinated, we'll buy you an all-inclusive pay trip somewhere because it'll be safe for you to travel. So there's lots of different options companies can think about, and what is right will really depend on the nature of workforce, population, and the company goals, and that definitely is what's keeping a lot of clients busy these days. So at a high level, that's the employment summary, but we definitely do welcome questions on all these topics.
2: Now, I would just add, um, before we go into the questions, what I think uh, hopefully everyone is hearing from us, is that there is a really delicate balance of sort of uh, risk assessment, and, and really it, what what at least I think we're finding is m- much of what, what drives this is in some ways um, being driven by the cultural uh, message that employers in particular uh, want to send And and a recognition that, especially in this environment, environment, unfortunately, frankly, um, the risk of liability is going up because because there are actually groups out there who are looking to sue. And so what folks like Dan and our employment group have been spending, unfortunately, a lot of time doing is helping employers who wish to move forward from a mission and cultural perspective make sure that they're doing everything they can to have their workforce be safe, individuals with whom they um, work for be safe and the general public be safe. They are making sure that from a legal perspective, they've done everything they can appropriately so that unfortunately, if there is a lawsuit, it can be knocked down. Thankfully, because of the precedent that you saw um, I went over. So I think, uh, as I said, there's not, I don't think any of us is saying that, you know, you will, you will be protected forever from a lawsuit. Uh, unfortunately, right now there is a plethora of folks out there looking to sue. What I think we're saying is you're on strong ground to move forward from a public health perspective. If you so choose, because the liability protections are more in your favor than not, assuming you do a careful analysis based on your state uh, and and your uh, er- everything else that we've talked about, because it is complex. It's not a very simple legal analysis. Trust me, we would love it to be. <laughs> it, it would mean that we, <laughs> Dan would not be working 24-7. <laughs> Now we can get into questions.
0: Excellent. Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate the slides and the information. Very eye-opening, you know, and, and I would first say, just even for me, what is eye-opening is that, you know, when I think any employer, most employers, if they could wave a wand and all of their employees were vaccinated and protected without any issues, who wouldn't say yes, right? Who who wouldn't do that? Who would not want to save people's lives and and, and, and so on? but when you start getting down to the fallout from that in real life one of the one of the big ones i think is is for people who are not you know who don't dive into this 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 sort of thing is that uh, religious accommodation anytime i think an employer hears it's against my religion they want to. They want to go as far away from that as they possibly can, right? We can't ask any questions. It, they said it's against their religion. I'm not going to ask them why. But it was eye-opening to me in, in, in the slides here that, that an employer can, in fact, ask for documentation on that. Uh, just as they can um, a, a, a medical issue that, that, a, that an employee is claiming that they have. So, um, you know, for everybody that's on the webinar there, uh, it looks like, don't be afraid to ask for that documentation if you think there's some concern that 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 accommod- accommodation may not be truthful or may need some supporting evidence
1: behind it.
3: Yeah, I would just quickly add and that's a great observation. We don't recommend that you ask for it up front. So the best practice is to have the employee submit, usually a form, there's lots of templates online, we have templates also to say, I'd like a religious accommodation request. Then if you look at that form and see, you need more information, which you almost always will for a religious accommodation request, then you ask for the follow-up information. And to Dr. Heisler's point too, we've been talking a lot about the reasons to do a vaccine mandate. And from a public health perspective, it certainly is the safest approach, but there are real employment-related reasons not to do it also. As Sue mentioned, there could be cultural issues, why it doesn't make sense in certain workplaces. And you might have significant portions of a workforce who just don't wanna be vaccinated and won't qualify for one of these accommodation buckets. And then what do you do with those people? And that's been a big question because there are workforce continuity issues that come into play. So it definitely is nuanced.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, in this, the second thing that I that I saw and it's, it's back here on this slide was, you know, I, I know employers are pretty well versed in the fact that when they're hiring somebody as part of that pre-employment process, you can't ask any medical questions until you've offered them a, 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 a position, right? So does that still apply in this case with vaccination during a pre-employment process? Can you ask somebody before you've made them a a contingent offer, are you vaccinated and not hire them based on that answer?
3: It's a fabulous question. Uh, So the answer is a little bit nuanced, but in general, Whether somebody is vaccinated or not, given the EEOC, I think may have been on the prior slide. Oh, it's right here, this top bullet. It's not a disability related inquiry. We're comfortable with you asking, are you vaccinated or not? And we're comfortable with employers, and a lot of companies are doing this, putting on job posting saying must be vaccinated, vaccinating required, something of that nature. That's all perfectly fine. The issue to be aware of is the ADA protections, Title VII protections I went through, apply to candidates also. So if somebody says I'm not vaccinated and the, reason they're not vaccinated is because they cannot be vaccinated due to one of these issues and they request an accommodation, then you still have to go through the process. It might be problematic to just reject those claims out of hand and not consider anybody. But what companies can do is say, you'll have to be vaccinated often you may not ask for actual proof of vaccination until after giving them a conditional offer of employment. But you can say, you're gonna have to give proof of vaccination before your first start date. And can you verify that you'll be able to do that? And if they say no, then you can say, well, it's required and you either need to be vaccinated or get an accommodation. And then they can request an accommodation usually from a human resources function. But if they don't do any of that, then yes, the person can be rejected. And it actually has been a common question and approach in organizations to not mandate vaccination for their current people, but to require it for all new people coming in. And that's legally permissible as well.
0: Great. Excellent. I am going to go back to this slide and just have it up. I can find it here. Just because I think, is it this one? There we go. I want to leave this one up here just while we're talking and and answering questions, because I think if if anybody you know gets gets one thing away from our webinar today it's it's probably bullet point number one that federal law permits employers to mandate the vaccine right plain and simple at a high level and then i and then i think you have to go through your state and local and 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 make sure you've done a a good legal analysis as as you both have upset uh, so without further ado, I'm going to jump into some questions that were posed to us. Um, so, you know, let's start off with, with us here in Texas. Texas has an executive order by our governor which says state agencies cannot mandate vaccines. So if you're like Dr. Delclose and you work for a, a, a state hospital system, what does that mean for, for, those, for those companies? Can, can they not mandate that vaccine because of that um, executive order? And is it possible in the future, we may see that overruled?
3: Yeah, and Sue can jump in here too. I'm not an expert on Texas law, but Texas isn't the only state that has done this. Florida, Arizona, Oklahoma, I believe, Montana. There's others that have issued similar types of orders restricting vaccination requirements on state entities. And those are generally permissible. That's generally within the state's power to create rules for its workplaces and for its populations. So if the state has issued like Texas an executive order that says state agencies and organizations cannot mandate vaccination, that is generally enforceable. The question you raise at the end is a really interesting one which is could the federal law overturn that? I think it's unlikely for that to happen for all sorts of reasons, but the question of whether it could or not would certainly be a, an interesting one that would be go probably to the Supreme Court right. if it really gets litigated, because there's arguments on both sides on whether the government could do that or not.
2: Yeah, so what you're really asking is the issue that we deal with all the time of states' rights, um, and it's a—it's not just occurring in the vaccine environment, it occurs with respect to everything, it's the relationship between states and the federal government, and so uh, it has not yet been litigated, so what you're hearing us say is we don't know the answer, it would have to be litigated, it would probably be decided by the Supreme Court so having said that currently states can take the action that uh the governor has taken here in the state of texas and since the state of texas is serving as the employer in this circumstance the employer is saying in particular we are not unlike most of what we've been talking about can employers mandate the vaccine yes employers can also not mandate the vaccine which is what the state of Texas has done, unfortunately, in the situation where you have Dr. Del Close and other healthcare. The state is a very large healthcare provider, as you might imagine, and as a result, um, uh, it's unfortunate because as a major healthcare provider in the state, it cannot do what it needs to do to protect its patients. So you know where I, I'm very, uh, I'm very biased. So I'm a bad person to ask. <laughs>
3: It is an interesting question, and it could be subject to litigation. We haven't talked about it, but there's an interesting lawsuit in Florida right now. And so, similar to Texas, Florida created a law, not on mandate specifically, but it says that any organization, including a private business, cannot require patrons or customers to show proof of vaccination as a condition for entering. And other states are doing different things. So, in New York City, where I am, You actually now must show proof of vaccination like i had to do this weekend when i went out to eat at a restaurant florida is saying no company is allowed to require proof of vaccination and carnival cruise lines has a lawsuit pending against florida which has already been uh, successful at the first stage although it's still continuing forward to overturn that and say florida didn't put forth a sufficient justification for this limit which was a constitutional question so as sue said there could be litigation on that type of requirement. But for the time being, employers in states that say government agencies cannot mandate vaccination should be cautious of not following those directives.
2: I will just say one thing. We're talking about mandates here, but it doesn't prevent anyone from saying things are strongly encouraged, (laughs) providing um, you know, educational um, awareness information in order to Uh, encourage and recommend uh, best practices, which I know are already doing.
3: And even on-site clinics, which is relatively easy to do in the healthcare world. And a lot of other organizations are doing it as well.
2: Oh, Dr. Heisler, we can't hear you. You Excellent.
0: I would would love for us to have a brief, am I off? Let's see, can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay, good, good. That's always the, the the worrisome part of this uh, hosting this webinar. Something does not work. So let's have a brief a brief clarification on what does the term HIPAA protected, privacy protected mean, and who does that relate to? Like I said in the beginning, you know, a lot of people are scared to death to touch anything related to a vaccine or a test result because they assume it's protected information. They cannot ask their employee those those answers. So maybe Sue, can you help clarify what is what is if something is HIPAA protected, who is that in relation to? Who cannot give an employer that information?
2: Yeah, I think HIPAA is used today as a crutch, as I think you um, you alluded to, uh, and unfortunately, it's be it's. It's it's a very complicated law, but it, it doesn't apply literally to everybody all the time for everything. So when the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act was passed, it, it really was intending to deal with the entities, healthcare providers, health plans, healthcare clearinghouses, and what are called business associates. So while vaccine information is considered protected health information as we've been talking about, the privacy rules limit its uses and disclosures technically to those that are required for, and I'm reading from the statute, treatment, payment, or healthcare operations. Other uses and disclosures typically require consent, which is what we've been talking about. So if an employer asks an employee to provide proof of vaccination, In order to, you know, say you don't have to wear a mask, which may have been true before the Delta variant, but may not be true, but any other limitation, it's not a HIPAA violation and it doesn't apply to most employers. If the employer were to ask a provider to give them that information, a provider could not do so unless it had a specific consent from the patient. So it's not a HIPAA violation per se to talk about vaccination, but what you're going to hear us say, and you heard us talk about this ad nauseum is that is not the only consideration when you were, if you were going to talk about asking that information from an employee. So what we have said, because, you know, we'll be lawyers, every set of facts is different is, um, it's really advisable to seek some review of your privacy policies, for instance, and to make sure you're not considered a business associate. Many of you probably have signed business associate agreements. Um, But in addition to that, um, it may pose a problem with respect to these other laws you heard Dan talk about, which is EEOC, ADA, Title VII. So, Dan, you may want to, to weigh in here, but I think we need to be careful when someone just says, you can't ask me because it's a HIPAA violation. Don't be dissuaded by that, but you should be, you should seek a legal analysis because there are a number of other legal um, potential issues that arise. And so before you go doing that, you just want to make sure you've got all your ducks in a row, which is what I've been saying all along. Dan, go ahead.
3: I totally agree with all of that. If an employer is getting information from an employee directly, they don't even need that type of HIPAA authorization form. They can just say, you have to let us know by October 1st whether you're vaccinated or have to show proof of vaccination by October 15th. That is not a HIPAA triggering issue unless the employer is saying, You need to show our medical provider, perhaps, which is a HIPAA covered entity that you're vaccinated and we're going to get the information from them, as Sue mentioned. But as we talked about, employers do still need to treat that information confidentially and should only release it where it's required to be released by law or where there is a really um, Articulable, articulable sufficient business reason to do so, because otherwise the employer could say this is private information. They are breaching my privacy. They shouldn't have shared this, and it can create significant employee relations issues.
0: Great, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna tail end off of that last comment you just made, Dan, because uh, I, I get the, the question posed a lot of the time is that, okay, well, it's great that HR knows. Who of these employees are vaccinated? But when you trickle down to the office setting or the refinery site level of all the, you know, that site supervisor needing to know or wants to know who of my employees are vaccinated so I can keep this sector of the refinery safe. Where does that communication? Where should it stop? Where should it be kept confidential? And when should it? trickle trickle down and i know that, i know you could probably go through a thousand different scenarios on that but you know is it always should it always just be kept confidential at the hr level or are there instances where it should go down to a more uh, site level to keep that workplace safe
3: Yeah, it's a good question. Unfortunately, as Sue mentioned, we're gonna be lawyers here and say there isn't a single answer as you uh, inferred as well. In general, we think that information should not go to the employee level. So you should not be releasing information on which employees in a worksite are vaccinated to other employees in a worksite. What companies can do if they want to is to say, obviously, if you're requiring everybody to be vaccinated, then people will know they're all vaccinated. And you could release aggregate numbers and say, and a lot of our clients without mandating vaccination. vaccination have said, especially earlier on uh, in the pandemic when vaccines were just getting more and more available, 45% of our people are vaccinated. A week later, it's 50%, now the week later, it's 60%. And some companies, to Sue's point before about incentivizing it, have tried to make it a competition and to say, who's going to get to 70% first, will it be our Houston facility or our Austin facility, and give some reward to whichever facility gets there first. So that's all perfectly permissible. What we don't want though is generally employees to get lists of which other employees are vaccinated or not. That's probably too much information to be shared. If there is, and it will depend on the type of workspace and the type of industry, but a reason that individual managers should know who's been vaccinated. then I think it is permissible for individual managers to know who's been vaccinated, but it gets complicated because Once a manager knows that, and this is, we always, unfortunately, in the labor and employment legal space, see worst case scenarios, it opens that person up to potential liability because the employee could say, well, really the manager is treating me differently because I chose either to get vaccinated or not to get vaccinated. And we've seen both sides of that card, certainly. And so we generally like keeping this information to a higher level of employee than just direct line managers but there certainly are situations where it makes sense for the line manager to know, and maybe it's dealing with third parties. Often in the healthcare industry, hospitals will require all external people or external workers coming in to be vaccinated. And so a manager may need to know if they have salespeople that are going into hospital systems, which people are vaccinated so they can send them to those accounts. That would be legitimate too. And that's an example of where there is a legitimate business need, but there just should be, and I know I'm uh, beating a dead horse on this, a real legitimate business reason that the company can rely on when saying, here's why we share this information with this group of people outside of HR
0: excellent excellent well i don't want dr Delclose to fall asleep on us so i'm gonna throw a question at, at at him right now so george let's talk about ivermectin for for a minute or two so when i was going through medical school as i'm sure you had the same class on pharmacology ivermectin is to treat worm infections it's to treat parasites in your intestines and that's what it's there for So, why in the world now are we hearing so much clatter about ivermectin is going to be the saving grace for COVID and so many people trying their hardest to to get a prescription for ivermectin? Is there any truth to that drug even potentially being a treatment for COVID-19?
1: So... You're right, uh, it's a medication that has been used in human beings uh, for worms, ringworm, for example, or not ringworm, roundworm, pinworms, things like that. It's also widely used in veterinary medicine as a deworming agent, in cows and horses. Um, The interest in ivermectin arises from its mechanism of action in that some of the effects in a lab uh, that uh, could theoretically prevent the virus from latching on to different surfaces of the human body, in, in theory. So in medicine, when we explore, uh, or we identify potentially new and, and interesting medications, we uh, nonetheless have to take it through its paces before we decide that it is A, effective for preventing something, in this case, COVID, or treating it even, uh, and B, that it's safe to do so. So the the lab, um, the lab-based studies raised enough of a question that it, uh, ivermectin has and is being studied in clinical in clinical research, just like any other medication. Um, but so far, the studies are inconclusive, and so that's why the C, uh, inconclusive or have not shown a benefit. Um, you know, when we look at the weight of medical evidence, we don't find one study and then have an aha moment and say, okay, this one study found that it worked and therefore it works. No, um, there probably is a study out there where it showed some benefit, but you have to look at the weight, the combined weight of all of the studies and see where the evidence is, how well they were done, et cetera. That's the same process that uh, remdesivir is going through, steroids have gone through, the vaccine has gone through, And so far, ivermectin has not met that burden of evidence that favors uh, its use. It shows that it is effective. In fact, the majority of the evidence is either inconclusive or has shown no benefit. So in my mind, we can't apply different rules to different medications simply because they suit us, okay? Um, so, So that's where the recommendation to not use it comes from. It has been used. Um, uh, But, uh, you know, anecdotally, but until you do the research and you do it correctly and you ask questions, you do it in an impartial, unbiased manner, you can't really get reliable results. Now, currently, what's more concerning is since people can't get their physicians, for example, to prescribe ivermectin, uh, some folks have decided to go out to their neighborhood uh, feed store for uh, horses and cows and buy... ivermectin that are not intended for human beings they're intended for cows and horses the dosages are different the preparation is different the added ingredients are different and so the only thing that that has resulted in is a a flurry many calls to poison centers throughout the nation from people who've gotten sick on this stuff okay So, um, I mean, in the same way that I wouldn't take other medications that are meant for cows, at doses that are meant for cows, I wouldn't take ivermectin either. Hope that helps. Uh, And, and, you know, the FDA came out with an ad, my kids, I was on TV saying this the other day, and my kids were laughing because they thought it was really brilliant of me, but it's not, I I, I stole it from the FDA, that ad where they said, you are not a cow, you are not a horse, stop it.
2: Exactly.
0: (laughs) Thanks, George uh okay back to a legal question and this is probably one question that that i get the most when it comes to can i mandate a vaccine and that is you know there there were not long-term studies on this vaccine right it just came out last year we haven't looked at it over five years or 10 years to see long-term potential side effects so i mandate it for my entire workforce 20 years later we find out that that it causes brain cancer in 10% of those who 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 took the vaccine. Can, can that employee potentially sue me, the employer, 20 years later because I forced them to do it?
3: It's an interesting question. And I would uh, love Dr. Delclose's view on the uh, uh, rigor of how much testing has gone into these. And as I understand it, the actual rigor and data is so much better for these vaccines than almost any other product because we are experiencing a pandemic. So you can get real-time data on a very wide scale. That's not always available. And the FDA in the US has gone through a very thorough process in granting the initial EUAs to the Pfizer, Moderna and J&J produced vaccines. And then obviously final approval to Pfizer on August 23rd. Uh, So the question about employer liability though is an interesting one. there's nothing special about vaccines here in general this will be a workers comp question and workers comp law or compensation law varies on a state-by-state basis and at a very very high level says If somebody gets injured during the course of their employment, they can bring a claim against their employer. If an employer is requiring somebody to do something like get a vaccine, and somebody has, even if it's now a very severe side effect, those are very rare, and Dr. Delclos can probably speak to them much better than I can. But if they get a very severe side effect, that would probably be covered by workers' compensation if the company is requiring them to be vaccinated. But the interesting nuance here to your question, Dr. Heisler, is Oftentimes, and it is a state-by-state question, whether a company is mandating the vaccine may not matter. If a company is recommending people get vaccinated and saying, we think it's important that everybody get vaccinated, which basically every large company has said, an employee could say, well, I took that as the company wanting me to get vaccinated, and a state workers' compensation board very well could, and at least California has even said it would, uh, say workers' comp would cover that type of if there is a resulting injury, that type of scenario as well. So I, I, I would imagine the chances of there being some sort of latent, really severe side effect from these vaccines is very close to zero, if not, a sort of an infinitesimal amount but if somebody does get sick could they sue a prior employer for causing that injury it will be a state-by-state question I think the chances of them being able to bring that suit will likely be covered under workers comp and what I didn't say but should have is workers compensation is the exclusive remedy for any type of workplace illness so if somebody gets hurt in the course of their job they have to go through workers compensation they can't sue their employer for a multi-million dollar case as a result. So I, I I get the concern, but I think the legal risk is very, very low.
2: Yeah. And I was just going to say again, um, and this is just an important thing for everyone to realize, it goes back to the very basic question, especially in this situation, you can't prevent yourself from getting sued. Anyone can sue anyone for anything. The question really is, are you set up well to have it dismissed out of out of case out of sorts very quickly are you set up appropriately so that you can go to sleep at night and know that this will go away and I think that um, what we're telling you is as long as this as long as whatever you're doing is done thoughtfully in a way that takes all of these issues into consideration is carefully implemented um, and meets with your own mission, culture, etc. There is legal guidance to provide support and appropriate defense.
3: That's a really good point. And just to piggyback on that, if a company is acting reasonably based on the currently available guidance, and right now there's no reason to know there's some long-term potential harm, that will be a strong defense also. And as I understand it, I think probably while we've been on this webinar, President Biden is urging companies to get vaccinated or is about to make an announcement to that effect. And is urging companies to do vaccine mandates, many local governors have as well. That certainly is a regional thing, but following that guidance would also show the company's acting reasonably based on the currently available guidance, and that will be a strong defense to any type of litigation.
0: Excellent. Uh, George, a medical question that several people have asked here. Can you, can you talk about the death counts? And is are, are, how do we know 600,000 deaths does not include you know, 90% that had a heart attack? but because they had COVID-19, it's counted as a COVID
1: death. Sure, well, it, it's likely that uh, they, they did have other medical conditions. So we know that two of the things that risk that increase your risk of dying from COVID are number one, your age, the older you are, uh, the more likely, the more susceptible you are to dying of COVID, that, that risk is dramatically decreased by vaccination. It's not zero, but it's dramatically decreased. And second, because um, people who have pre-existing medical conditions are also more at greater risk uh, of dying. Um, And, uh, for example, this is not all that. I mean, the the, the infection itself is, is what kills them in the end, but what makes their body's so susceptible to dying is the fact that, let's say if they have heart disease, their heart can't respond to the infection as well. Or if they have underlying lung disease, one of the things that I deal with, their lungs are are, are, are not able to fend off the infection as, as compared to a set of healthy lungs. So um, it's very likely that uh, many, uh, possibly the majority um, of COVID-related deaths, there is some other condition. Obesity is probably one of the most um, common uh, additional risk factors for dying, and obesity carries with it a number of other conditions like something called metabolic syndrome, et cetera, that make you more susceptible to the severe, to being able to fight the infection and therefore dying.
0: Excellent. Uh, another question for you, George, um, that we see a lot is, and somebody asked here, there was some discussion, I think, back and forth, and as the as the pandemic goes, that that conversation has a tendency to sway back and forth who has stronger antibodies, somebody that had the infection naturally and got over it or the person who has been fully vaccinated?
1: Yes, there's pretty good evidence that vaccinations confer a greater degree of protection than having had the infection, which does not mean that you don't get some natural immunity from having had the infection. In other words, you have the COVID infection and then you are protected from having additional doses. It's not a zero chance. what is in debate is how long that actually lasts. Um, but we do know, and you compare different tests. So tests When we look at um, you know, people, a person that has had an infection, we look at things like, for example, the antibodies that they've generated because they had the COVID infection. We look at them, uh, those the type of antibodies, the length of time that they last before they start dropping off. And we do the same thing with vaccines. When you get vaccinated, you're triggering your body to develop antibodies. And so you'll also depend, um, uh, you'll also generate antibodies. And when you look at the levels in general, the vaccination levels um, of antibodies are much higher than natural infection. However, if you've had the natural infection, well, there is very good evidence for us. If you've had the actual infection COVID, and then you get vaccinated, fully vaccinated, your protection is extremely high, much higher than somebody who's never had the infection but it gets fully vaccinated and much higher than somebody who's had the infection, but chooses not to get vaccinated. And for what it's worth,
3: it crosses over to employment. There's no general exception that's required or under law for somebody to say, I have been fully vaccinated. Excuse me. I have not been fully vaccinated. I have had the infection and I have high antibody levels. Therefore I shouldn't have to be vaccinated that's not a legitimate legal reason for someone not to be vaccinated under the applicable employment laws
1: yeah i mean that most of the evidence is that natural infection protects for at least three months i personally think it they probably protects for longer than that and and a practical way where we can see that that's applied is in international travel there are many countries now that um to enter you either have to show a negative covid test a negative pcr or antigen test or you have to show proof of vaccination, or they will also accept that you've had COVID in the previous three months. They've put a time window around.
0: it. Uh, Legal question it looks like here. Can you legally ask an employee if they've had COVID in the past?
3: Yes, you can. Um, You just have to keep the responses confidential. And for the same reason, you can do screening of employees. And a lot of places and states were requiring screening to say, do you currently have COVID? Have you been diagnosed, infected, exposed, et cetera? Companies can absolutely ask if someone has had COVID in the past that is probably a medical question so the or the response will be a medical question so the information should be kept confidential and secure as we've discussed but companies can absolutely ask that information
0: okay uh it looks like we we're down to our last five minutes and several questions that will probably go unanswered at least live but we'll try to get those uh those answers written if we can and get those disseminated um george what what uh variants on the horizon are you worried about
1: so before i answer that there was a question in the chat that i have to answer and somebody said why do you rely on the new york times for your slides i don't rely on the new york times for my slides i like the slides from the new york times but the new york times doesn't go out and collect data it gets it from a multiplicity of sources including the cdc so the reliable data they just happen to be better graphic artists than other places um, and have nicer slides, but not all my slides are from the New York Times. Okay, variants, okay, that's a a great question. Um, So both the CDC and the World Health Organization are constantly uh, doing surveillance for new variants that are popping up of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the one that causes COVID. Um, And and by the way, the natural history of of any virus is to tend to want to mutate uh that's that's not specific to the to the virus that causes covid and they classify and so variants are, are, are appearing all the time um who and cdc both have a classification system where they say uh, they classify some of these not all but some of these variants into what are called variants of interest and then we have variants of concern variants of interest are those uh, variants that have some characteristics that make us wonder whether they are likely to be, for example, more resistant to vaccines or whether they're likely to spread quicker. And once there's actual proof that that happens, then that becomes a variant of concern. Currently, the variant that worries me the most is the Delta variant. Why? Because well over 95% of the cases in the U.S. are attributable to the Delta variant. There's been a lot of talk in the press about the Mu or MU, the Greek letter uh, variant, which was originally reported in Colombia and has some characteristics that make us wonder whether it might be resistant. Right now, it is a very, very small portion of the the case of COVID in the US. And um, so far, it's mainly based on laboratory findings. There are no clinical data in human beings that right now suggest that they are resistant to the vaccine, but it's a variant to keep an eye on. And there are going to be more of these. But right now, the Delta, we have a lot of information on it. It is more contagious. It is probably likely to cause, to be more likely to cause severe disease, and um, and it can even be spread by people who are fully vaccinated because it enters their nose or their throat. And that's the whole reason for putting vaccinated people putting masks back on. You
0: know, I'll follow up that briefly, George. Maybe if you can do a a 20 second response. What what are the what is the latest studies on if masks
1: work? Well, the studies consistently have shown that masks work. Now, what do we mean by work? We don't mean preventing 100% of transmission. Nothing prevents 100% of transmission, including the vaccines. But they are much better than not being vaccinated or not wearing a mask, where the risks, the the, the risk of spread and acquiring the infection are huge. So it's got to be a comparative risk assessment, right? Um, when we ask, yes, masks are effective. Are there cases where, despite wearing a mask, you can transmit? Absolutely. For example, in hospitals, we don't allow plain surgical masks and certainly not cloth masks if somebody is in a room where they're giving, you know, an, an asthmatic, for example, a nebulizer treatment, the, the breathing uh, medicine. Why? Because that tends to aerosolize it. Uh, and aerosols, uh, are much more likely to penetrate despite having a mask in front of your face than droplets. But in the majority of cases, they they help. They dramatically decrease risk of transmission and acquiring, Um, and so, yeah, that's where the literature is right now. And it's been consistent. It's not one study. Remember I said earlier, one study does not a cause and effect make. It's the burden of the evidence.
0: Thanks, George. I'm gonna end it with one last question. It's a legal question. And this person wrote in and said, you, you included in, I guess, one of the slides that employers can mandate vaccines for employees physically entering a workspace. So what does that mean for employees who work from home?
3: It's a great question. There is not a clear guidance on that yet. So our general, communications and recommendations to our clients has been to not require vaccination for an individual who is a complete remote worker. Now, many people who primarily work from home still might have to go into work on occasion, even if it's quarterly or some infrequent basis. And so we think it'd be relatively safe to require vaccination for them. But if someone is truly hired on a remote basis, the, these cases just haven't been litigated yet on whether the company can require vaccination for that person. They likely could. And then the question could be, does that person have an exemption? Because the thought is they pose a direct threat to themselves. And that's why we're requiring them to be vaccinated. But that is definitely a legal question that needs further development. And I think it will be developed, but probably not for the next six to 12 months or so.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Any any closing statements that anybody would like to give before we shut her down?
2: Thank you so much for inviting us. I know us lawyers can be Boring over time, so thank you for letting us get to participate.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely, I'm sure we could have gone another uh, two hours and 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 still had questions left over. So, again, this will be posted to hasc.com uh, for anybody to go back and, and take a look at. And uh, again, we're going to try our best to answer any any remaining questions, uh, lines, just to make sure you get the you get the information that that you asked for. So. Again, hope everybody has a, a healthy and safe week, and we look forward to doing another webinar sometime in the near future. Take care, everybody.
2: Take care, everybody. Bye. Take care. Bye.